have an opportunity as a congregation to together move into a deeper understanding of, of, of who he is and, and of his plan of redemption unfolding as we, as we study the Holy Land and, and actually see his footsteps. And of the passages that Christ quotes to rebut them. So Christ, whose very words are God, only responds with scripture. And so instead of heading to Assyria, right, he comes here. It's unlikely that the river is going to part until you step into it. I think these small groups are going to be unparalleled in their ability to have people coming together, talking about their life with Christ, and living life together. So I just want to acknowledge that I'm going to be made fun of for wearing these glasses, and so I just wanted to be first and get this out of the way uh, and try and diffuse some of the grief that's coming my way. Um, in my defense, uh, Israel is very hot and bright. So some of those days, it was well over 100. One day it was 115 degrees, and I'm looking into the sun. So just remember that as you are making fun of me. And it's not a Hawaiian shirt, so uh, I got that going for me. Well, uh, over the last six weeks, we have been involved in this study of the life of Christ. A variety of different ways we've been, been trying to draw your attention to him. There are daily devotions that are reflections on his life and teaching. There have uh, been occasional lectures, such as one coming up tonight, that are a little bit deeper uh, historical and theological reflections on who he is and what he has uh, done. Some of you are reading the book that I wrote, and that has been a, an overview of Christ over time. So we established that he existed before time began, and then noted his involvement at creation. And then some cameo appearances during the Old Testament. And that even though he wasn't there, he was the topic of frequent conversation and descriptions and promises and prophecies. We noted how those ramped up around uh, the time of the incarnation. The announcement that he was coming. The virgin conception. His birth. A few days around his birth and early childhood, a little glimpse of him at the age of 12. And then, then we pick up with his baptism and his testing in the desert. And then uh, his three years as a rabbi as he marches ultimately towards Jerusalem. We look at his triumphal entry. We look at the, the commotion in the temple on Monday. We note that he's teaching there on Tuesday. He is betrayed. He is sold out by one of his followers on Wednesday. Thursday brings us to the Last Supper and then to his arrest. We see the trial. He is beaten. He is, he is crucified, buried, and then we watch his resurrection. And then there's those 40 days after his resurrection in which he is around explaining what just happened. Right? who he is and what just happened before he ascends into heaven. The heavens open up and he ascends into heaven with the promise that that's not the end of the story, that he will return and that there will ultimately be a big banquet and celebration for eternity around Christ. 
in these sermons, I've gone a different route. I have been doing my best to persuade uh, you that Jesus is, in fact, God. Those of you who believe He is Savior and Lord, I'm saying we got great evidence that you're right. And those of you who are standing outside the circle looking in, I've said, look, uh, we're not asked to sell out our mind in order to believe this. We have lots of arguments that there is nobody like Jesus because, in fact, He is God and man. In the first message, I, I, I pointed out that in, in this, of the 60 billion people who have walked on the planet, he's had the biggest and the best impact of anyone. In the second message, we looked at what he taught, giving us the greatest ethical system of all time and claiming to be God. In the third message, we looked at some of his unique power and ability, power over life and sickness and evil and nature and death, the kind of powers you would expect God to have. Last week, uh, I, I, I did my best to persuade you that, that God made a whole bunch of, of promises beforehand about what the Savior would be like, where he would be born, how he would die, the tribe he was going to be from, where he, all these details. God described a whole bunch about Jesus hundreds of years before he came. We looked at the, at the statistical probability that any person could fulfill just a couple of the hundreds of prophecies that were made in the Old Testament about Christ and then noted that Jesus fulfilled all those that have been fulfilled. There's more. There's more there are more arguments that could be made. Today, I, I, at the risk of piling on, I, I want to I turn to, this, uh, to, to a couple slides and, and just give you some visuals because a picture occasionally is worth a thousand words. And this slide is to say, look, the Bible is not a collection of advice. It is not a bunch of morality tales. It's not a bunch of inspirational stories telling us that we should try harder and be better so that God will love us. The Bible is principally the story about Jesus. The Old Testament is pointing forward to Jesus. The Gospels are all about Jesus. The New Testament, the rest of the New Testament, Acts through Revelation, is pointing back to Jesus. He's the center of the story. We unfold this a little bit more. You see that, that there's more detail that could be given. Genesis 1 through 11 is, um, is the setup. It provides us with the situation. And the situation, uh, not to be confused with the reality TV star, uh, the situation, but our situation uh, is that we were created by a good, loving, all-powerful God, but everything unraveled when we rebelled. We are estranged from God. We start off in debt. We are broken, sinful, full of pride, greed, lust. We are, we are broken, and that means that we deserve to eternally be separated from the God who can complete us. The bad news is particularly bad because it's bad news that we can't fix. But, Genesis 3, the first promise is made that God is going to send 
a rescuer. So you see all these little arrows that start in the Old Testament and point to Jesus. The first one says prophecy. So there are all these promises and descriptions that are going to unfold throughout the Old Testament, as we talked about last week, that point to Christ. Additionally, we've got another ark that that represents the law. Uh, God, after after Genesis 1 through 11, which sets up the situation, God calls Abraham and an additional promise is made. The promise is that the rescuer is going to come through the bloodline of Abraham, i.e. going to come through the Jews. And so the Jews, through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they get stronger. Then, of course, uh, they, they flee. when the, They sell Joseph into slavery in Egypt, the brothers do. And when there's a famine, they have to go to Egypt. And they end up staying there because Joseph has risen in power. And they're there for hundreds of years, but they fall into slavery. And, and so God sends Moses to liberate them. Moses and the people will, after leaving Egypt, will be given the law. And the law is given to them for at least three reasons. First of all, it is going to help them survive. The law of God reflects how life actually works. The laws of God are not arbitrary. They're they're part of the design. You want a healthy society, one that, that moves forward? Keep the law. Life works a whole lot better when you do things the way God designed it. God wants the Jews to have a healthy society, not a dysfunctional one that's going to implode, because it's through that bloodline that the Savior is going to come. So the law is given because of Christ. Additionally, the law is given to make it really clear what God's standards are here so that everybody understands that they can't keep them. We have a tendency to look around and judge ourselves, our intentions, not our actions. We judge our intentions versus other people's actions, and we often come off feeling pretty good about ourselves. I'm better than average. If God grades on a curve, I'm, I, I mean well. I'm sure he'll understand. The law's in place to say, no, here's the bar. You have to get over the bar. No one can do it. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the law is given so that we realize our need for help. The law is also given because Jesus will be the only one to keep it. And this is, this is going to be part of the confirmation that he is who he claims to be. He's the only one who keeps the law. We have additional indications of what God is doing and going to do, additional Old Testament events that point to Christ. The sacrifices, beginning in Genesis and and winding their way through the Old Testament, first at altars, then in in a tabernacle, ultimately uh, at the temple, the Jews were expected to bring an animal to the priest, and this animal would be killed. This process would happen over and over and over and over and over and over and over throughout your life. It drills home the idea. When I sin, I deserve to die. Sin equals death. But substitute deaths are allowed. When I sin, someone is going to pay for it. 
Somebody, someone or something is going to have to give up their life. Sin is a capital offense, but substitute deaths are allowed. This is going to point to Christ. Right? We've got another, we get the, the, the prophet, priest, and king motif. Right? I, I mentioned last week that, that there were three different offices that God moved through in the Old Testament. Prophets spoke for God. Priests represented the people to God. Kings were in charge of civil affairs. Jesus is going to be the fulfillment of all of those offices. He's the perfect spokesman for God. He's God. He is our high priest. He represents us before the Father. We don't need another priest. Jesus fulfills that role. And he is the king of kings. We just have all of, these, all of these arrows that are pointing to Christ, including this, uh, this list that I have established as uh, the foreshadowing events. And I have a, a list of the foreshadowings that we get from Christ, which, of course, right at this moment, I cannot find. <laughs> well, uh, I truly am not going to find it. Well, let me, Tim Keller, uh, a, a pastor from um, New York. Yeah, no, don't have it. Okay, well, Tim Keller, <laughs> pastor of New York, gave a list of, uh, of events. And the first time you read through the, the Bible, these things don't pop out at you. You don't understand them. The second time, you probably don't understand them. Maybe not even the third time, but eventually, it begins to make sense to you that what you're reading about are actually foreshadowings. They are things that are pointing ahead to Jesus. Jesus is the true and perfect Adam, for instance. The first Adam failed the test in the garden. The second Adam, Jesus, passes his test in the desert. Jesus is the true and perfect Abraham who's expected to leave where he's living and go to a foreign land on behalf of other people. Jesus leaves heaven and comes to earth. Jesus is the true and perfect Isaac. Right, that whole issue where Abraham takes Isaac, binds him up. God says, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son, the son you love, and I want you to go to this mountain and I want you to tie him up and offer him as a sacrifice on that hill. Right? That is all about what another father is going to do to another son. It is a shocking event designed for us to think. How unthinkable is it to ask a father to give up his own son? Right? Well, Abraham doesn't sacrifice Isaac, but God the father will sacrifice God the son. Right? This is all about Christ. Abraham is, is, is the true and perfect Esther who doesn't just represent her people and doesn't just say, I am, I'm going to step forward and if I perish, I perish. But Jesus says, when I perish, I perish. Jesus is the true and perfect Jonah who gets thrown out of the boat, but who survives after three days in, in the belly, who rises again. Jesus is the true and perfect David, right, who, who not only successfully slays the Goliath, but does so. He, he, he conquers the giant. He defeats evil. And we get the credit for that even though we do nothing to lift a hand. All of these events that are happening in the Old Testament are pointing forward to Christ. And, and as you read through the book, it, eventually 
you go, I get it. The book is about Jesus. All roads point to Jesus. He is the center of the story. And he's not just the center of the story. He is God. Jesus is God. Not just the Messiah. Because the Jews were looking for a Messiah, but they didn't think the Messiah was going to be God. Jesus is the Messiah, and he is God. The Bible is a story about Jesus. Now, again, there, there is more. I mean, we could look at the fact that Jesus is God because he's worshipped. We could look at the fact that Christ rose from the dead as the ultimate proof that he is who he claimed to be. We could just, I mean, just the fact that it's Jesus who launches the church is reason enough for us to step back and marvel at him. This is now the oldest, the largest institution in the world. The most economically diverse, the most ethnically diverse, the most geographically diverse institution. Yes, it's flawed. But it, it, while individual congregations are fragile, no one can stop the church. Right? I mean, how long do, do companies last? Not 2,000 years. I mean, we could, in so many different ways, Jesus is unique. He's powerful. We could go on. But I, I'm, I'm going to assume that at this point, five weeks into this series, that I have persuaded you that the book is about Jesus and that uh, he is unique and that most of you would go so far as to also agree with me that he is God. Okay? I, I now want to ask a question. Why did God become man? Why did he show up? The book says that Jesus, who is eternal, existed as the Logos, at some point at the incarnation, adds manhood to, de- to godhood, adds humanity to deity, is fully God and fully man, and he walks among us. Why? Why did he show up? What was the mission? What, why did God become man and walk among us? Well, I think that a, a full answer to that question would have a handful of facets to it. We would first have to recognize that one of the reasons that God became man was to reveal God to us. That's what the writer of Hebrews says, right? That Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. A second reason that God became man was to demonstrate God's love for us. His compassion on display in Christ. A third reason that, that God became man was to show us what a perfect life looked like. This is how you're supposed to live. This is what a perfect person would do. His life is different than ours 2,000 years ago, single male. Our situation is different. We can't, we can't model it perfectly, but there's a lot about how Christ lived that answers the question about how we should live. Jesus fulfills the law. Somebody finally gets it done. No one else has. There are a variety of things that Jesus does, that he shows up on earth to do. But if we ask him, 
what the main reason is. If we look at the trajectory of the Bible to, to try and get an understanding, what is the, the principal assignment? What was the mission? The mission was to die. God became man in order to die. Jesus was born to die. Now, on one hand, this is um, perhaps somewhat obvious. The logo for the Christian faith is a cross. Right? The way Christ died. That's how it is represented. And, and so, in one sense, it, it, we get that Christ was born to die. But, most people that are famous are not famous for the way they die. They're famous for their life, not for their death. Why is Christ's death so pivotal? I mean, Old Testament points to the Gospels. The Gospels are all about Jesus. The Gospels point to Christ's death and resurrection. The Gospels are not biographies. We don't get told lots of things about Christ. Nothing at all from the time he's 12 until the time that he's 30. Most of what we get of his public ministry is the last week. Half of the whole Gospel of John is just about Christ's death. (laughs) This is the focus. Why did he have to die? What is the point? Well, again, I think that there is is no single answer succinctly captures everything that is going on in the death of Christ. No one explanation or metaphor is sufficient. Clearly, part of what Christ is doing in dying is defeating evil. He is fulfilling that first promise. He, he is going to crush the head of the serpent. So we have Christ in the most amazing way possible by dying, winning the battle. Secondly, I think we have God's love on display. Again, it's impossible to demonstrate greater love than that you would lay down your life for a friend. A third reason that Christ died A third thing that happens here is that we get an example, again, of how we're supposed to live. There is a moral imperative that comes with this. We should sacrifice ourselves for others. But the principal reason that Christ died was to take away our sin. Christ dies to pay our moral debt. Christ dies because this is the only way that we could be released from our moral obligation. God became man so that he could die because this was the only way to satisfy the demands of justice and the desires of love. Holiness made it impossible for God to ignore our debt. Love made it impossible for him to walk away. Only by dying in our place could God satisfy the demands of justice and love. His death was the perfect solution. Christ could represent us in death because he's not an animal. He's human. He's one of us. He perfectly represents us. Christ could die in our place 
because he lived a perfect life. He's the only one who kept the law. He's the only one who gets it right. Everybody else is required to die for their own death, their own sin. And this isn't just physical death, this is eternal death. Everyone else would be eternally obligated to be separated from God forever. Christ is the only one who doesn't have a debt. So he is able to die as that innocent third party who dies in place of others. And Christ can not only die for my sin, because he's God, his death has has a, a value that goes in every direction. Right? He can die for your sin as well. Christ is the perfect sacrifice. The Bible is all about Jesus. He is the center of the story. He is the center of the rescue efforts. He was born to die. He is God. He was born to die. The final point you need to understand is that you have to opt in. We have to choose to be a Christ follower. In John uh, third chapter, very famous verse, Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God so loved the world... That he gave his son, unthinkable act of giving his son. Again, think Abraham and Isaac. Who could imagine doing such a thing? God loved us so much. He gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish. Not that everyone. I mean, here's, here's this amazing decision that Christ forces upon us. Is he God or not? Are we going to follow or not? Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And John uh, John goes on, and he doesn't just write his gospel. He also writes uh, a couple letters. And in the first letter, he says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins. If. We humble ourselves, agree with God, repent. If we agree that we are broken, that we are fallen, that we need help, if we agree and if we repent, then he is faithful to forgive us of our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive of us our sins. Now, if you think about this long enough, you might go, wait a minute, I don't think I want justice. If if God is, is, is going to forgive me, then that's not justice, right? That's mercy. I want God to be merciful. I don't want him to be just. No, because if we confess our sins, if we declare Christ to be Lord, if we believe, if we make that decision, I'm with him, I'm standing with him, then our guilt is paid for by Christ. And it would be unjust of God To punish us for our sins because the payment for our sins has already been paid for by Christ. We stand in Christ. If we confess our sins and and believe in Christ, then we become children of God. We are adopted into the family of God. We trade our sin for his righteousness. That's Paul writing in 2 Corinthians 5. 
right? We, we get to be part of this great metaphysical transaction, the, the great exchange. If we confess our sins, then our sins go to Christ's account, and we not only get forgiven of our sins, but his perfection gets credited back to our account. His righteousness comes to us. It's as if we lived the perfect life. It's as if we kept the law. So, if we confess our sins, if we follow Christ, then we are given a new heart. We are forgiven and we're given eternal life. Peter writes about this as well. Again, <laughs> all, the, the Bible leads up. The Old Testament is pointing ahead to Jesus. The Gospels are all about Jesus. In the Gospels, they're all about Christ's death and resurrection. The rest of the, the New Testament, Acts through Revelation, largely is pointing back to the death and resurrection and explaining what happened. Peter writes this so that, so that it would be clear to us what went on. He says, Christ himself bore our sins in his body so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. He is writing to his followers, he's writing to the followers of Christ, and he's saying, if you're in Christ, Christ has borne your sins. Christians are those who accept Christ's offer. Christians are those who worship Christ as God. Christians are those who repent, who agree with God that they have fallen short and they need help. Christians are those to follow the example of Christ, who seek to live as he lived, not so that they're good enough to, to be loved by God and given eternal life, but with an understanding that Christ did everything that needed to be done for that to happen. So it's not out of obligation and fear, it's out of love and joy. That I want to, this guy is my Lord and King, I'm going to do what he says. I'm going to do everything I can to be like him. Christians are those who tell others about Christ, the free gift. This is the good news. This is the gospel. All roads point to this. Bible is about Jesus. He is God. He was born to die. You have to opt in. That's the story. That's Christianity 101. And so um, I'm going to end my message right now by giving those of you an option who, to opt in. Those of you who have not opted in, those of you who said, I've not understood it this way before, those of you who have, who, have, who have thought that this was all about being a good person and not understood the whole point of the book, I want to give you the same option somebody gave me about 30 years ago as they explained it to me, and I said, I want in. Yes, I'm broken, sinful. Yes, I do things I don't want anybody to know about. Yes, I have guilt. I want to get rid of it. Yes, I want to be in a good relationship with God. Yes, I believe that Jesus is God. So I'm going to share with you the prayer that was shared with me. If this prayer expresses the desire of your heart, I invite you to join with me in praying. Lord Jesus Christ, I am sorry for my sin. I have done many things wrong. I am full of selfishness and greed and pride and anger and, and other sins. Please forgive me. I need to be forgiven. I understand that I am broken and I need a rescuer. I want you to be my rescuer. Thank you for dying in my place. I can't even begin to grasp that you would do this for me. 
Thank you for dying in my place and paying the penalty for my sin. I now turn from my plans to yours. Spirit of God, I I want you to guide and direct me that I can be more like Christ. Not on on a path of trying to earn my salvation. I stand behind Christ. I want his representation. I want Christ's righteousness. I want, to, I want to live as if he is Lord. Guide me to that end. Thank you. Amen. Amen. Amen.